This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm curious, am I the furthest away? Someone who's called? Yeah. Yeah. No, you must have done Australia. Nope. Uh, maybe I did. Did I do Australia? Um, I have not done Australia because it was, I was too exhausted okay. uh, to do that interview. So they actually purchased the profile from the Australian paper, purchased the profile from the New York Times. Um, and I didn't talk to anybody, I don't think, on the radio. No, I didn't. I would have remembered the accent. No, so you are the furthest away. Definitely. You'd be surprised. That yeah. works really well for me. Uh, as in when I when I write to people and I'm like, I'm from Malaysia, I'm far away. And they're like, that is the furthest away I would love to do the interview. And I'm like, great. I know. No, totally. It, it works to your advantage because it's, well, it's not only far away, it's exciting. Yes. You know, what do you guys, do you have durian fruit? Oh, no, it's ours. It's it's ours. I it mean, is, right? Yeah, we love the stuff. Well, do we have it? What do you mean, do we have it? It's our, Yeah, so I don't really know much about it. I've never really had a ripe one. And I've always thought, I know that they smell like rotting flesh, blah, 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 blah. But I still would like to try it because... Don't try it over there because I think by the time it gets there, every time I I see those videos, it looks off. And I think people can't tell because it smells bad. Also, sometimes people say to me something like, oh, I don't like apricots. And I think, no. You probably do like apricots. You just never had a ripe one. <laughs> or a good one. You never one. had a ripe one. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you cannot judge a fruit by an unripe version. I think a lot of people in the West get thrown off by the texture because for you guys, when I say fruit, you think crunchy and juicy. And for the most part, durians are creamy. Right. That's what I've heard. Yes, they smell bad, but they actually taste like a lot of French cheese is the closest I can. Mm. Yeah, so if you, I think it's yeah. there's a mental block when people think this is a fruit. This is so weird. Why does it? Why is it creamy? Why does it taste like really bad brie? Texture is often what repulses people about food. It's texture. Yeah, but the taste thing is interesting because, like batarga, which is that it's like fish roe condensed into a cake. You know and. At first, I thought it was disgusting. Now, I cannot get enough of the stuff. <laughs> it is so good on eggs. It is so good on pasta. It is so good on everything. And it's stinky, right? Because it has umami. Correct. You know, so, right. So does durian have umami? No. I think so. I don't know. I can't quite put my finger on what umami is yet. Yeah, I know. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just, whoever uses it in the interview gets 10 points. <laughs> All right. Deal. It's kind of umami. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Okay, um, I'm ready. Whenever I'm you're ready. ready. I've got my tea. I'm sitting down. I'm ready. Cool. So before I start, Lisa, if I can get you just very quickly, hello, my name is, and I'm the author of. Okay. Go for it. Hello, my name is Lisa Brennan-Jobs, and I'm the author of Small Fry. You're listening to Bookmark. I'm Uma Paganampake Pagan, and if it wasn't already obvious, I'm speaking today to Lisa Brennan Jobs. Her memoir, Small Fry, is a wonderfully written and complex coming of age story of a girl caught between a struggling single mother and the temperamental co founder of Apple. So, Lisa, before we get into the book, I mean, it's been out for a while now, and I was hoping to talk to you about, I guess, the media reception and also the public reception to the book because before I got an arc, I was reading the interviews and the op-eds and the supposed think pieces. 
And I think it was slowly driving me a little crazy. And I was wondering whether it was doing the same for you because I can't remember where I saw the headline, but I think the headline read something along the lines of, Lisa Brennan Jobs has forgiven her father, should we? And the first thought that went through my head was, who are we to even make that call? As in, why is it my business to forgive Steve Jobs, your father? Surely that's your journey. Did that make you crazy? It's making me crazy. It's always making me crazy. And I'm trying to stay sane by meticulously, carefully not reading the reviews or the profiles. I felt like I needed to do some press for this book because I'm trying to get it out into the world so people will read it. And I think that they will find pleasure and insight in the book. And so it's almost like I have an obligation, not just to myself, because I wrote the book, but also to the book itself. It is now this separate entity and people get to have their own experience with my book, which is kind of crazy when it's a memoir, because it means they're having their own experience with my, with with my you. family yes. and my life. Right. But so here's the way that I sort of understand it. And I can talk about the profile in a minute. Um, but the way that I understand it is, have you ever read a book that you really loved maybe and, or that really affected you deeply? Maybe it was fiction and it meant something to you. And then you read it again a decade later and it seemed almost like it was a different book. All the time. Right. So, and I have the feeling it's not the book that changed. I think it was you. <laughs> I think it was you that changed. So what's happening is my book the way that I'm thinking about it is it's, it's reaching people at their, at a moment in their lives when they feel a particular way about this and that. And like all of us, they decide that is my book, but I'm not telling them actually how to feel in my book. I'm not telling them how to think or how to feel. I'm, I'm, I'm showing them, I'm letting them live as much as I can inside my insights and my memories and my history so that they get to feel their own feelings. Like when you're on a trampoline and you get really still so that the other person gets to fly up. Yeah. And I think that I've heard some, I, you know, I heard something, someone say, I think it was actually in the New York times review, which I did not read. Um, but my husband reads me little choice bits and sometimes he gets a little upset, but I heard someone say, why is she not more angry? Oh, and I think it was part of the pro. Why is she not more angry? Right. She should be and I thought, I am the person that wrote the scenes that made you angry. Do you think I put them in by accident? <laughs> I mean, I've worked on that book for many, many years. Every scene, it's not just that I wrote my whole life. I was only able to write one sliver, one fraction of my life that I hoped was representative of something I was trying to communicate, some meaning. And so every scene that's in there has, has a purpose and was freely chosen. So if one of the scenes makes someone, someone angry, I did that. <laughs> so, so the idea that I sort of unconsciously made them angry or that I'm forgiving or not forgiving, I think it's so much more complicated than that. I think forgiveness is also crazy because what is forgiveness? I don't really understand it exactly. I understand maybe coming to terms with something like you have to look at it. You look at this knot and you look at it from all of its angles and you look at it in the light. And because you understand it better, you can walk away from it. It's not that you've untied the knot. And then the other thing is like with the profile, I think that, you know, it was a tech writer writing that profile. She's never, she's younger than I am, which may have some bearing 
on her wisdom level, although who knows? She's never written about a woman, I don't think, never written about an artist. And so her instinct, as far as I could understand and heard, was to polarize things. And it turns out if you polarize things, you get more clicks. Of course you do. Because the, the reviews that were, as far as I understood, much more balanced and much more reflective of the book and understood the book deeply, they didn't get that sort of attention. So I don't know how we handle a world like that, but it, it has, I was thinking, I just want to wait until people get the chance to read the book because the book is not what people are saying it is. The book is much deeper and more meaningful. And it's not a question. It's not a trial of Steve Jobs. It's a story of a girl coming of age. It's a story of a girl in a complicated family. And I think it can be so distracting that there's Steve Jobs in the midst, but it's actually not about him. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that was my biggest takeaway because in reading the excerpts that were out there or the choice quotes that people often pick apart, it actually it actually removes all context and nuance from the story you're trying to tell. I know. Isn't it horrible? I know. I had no idea that that would happen. I was actually surprised. I thought it might happen a little bit, to the, but the extent to which it happened shocked even me. When you read the bits before and after, it actually creates a lot more narrative that is important to the story that you're trying to tell. But of course, if you take the quote out of context, it means absolutely nothing. Well, there's all this layering that happens in memoir too, right? Like I'm an adult. I'm a woman looking back on my feelings as a child and remembering them. But then I get I get to be a bit tongue in cheek because I know that that was my child's perspective. That was not my child, but a child's perspective. And I understand more now than she understood then. So I get to have this sort of layering of perspective. And for example, my mother's, so I talk about this boyfriend my mother had for a, for a little while when I was growing up, his name was Ron. And he was, he was pretty great. He was pretty great. Um, but, you know, also sort of eccentric and quirky. And there was a, a moment when he walks in for a first date with her and he wrote me an email and the email was titled correction. And I thought, Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. So I, I, I mustered my courage and opened up the email and in it, he said, um, you know, there's a character in your book that has my name and that strongly resembles me and that worked at NASA as I, as I do, that I was tempted to think of me, but then I came across the description of him. You say that he had hair like a clown and walks with his feet out like a duck and had lips like a fish or something <laughs> like that. I don't remember my exact description. So he said, and he said, so obviously that was not me. I have attached a photograph of myself <laughs> for you for future reference. And, and so I scroll down below and there's a, there's a photograph of Fabio. Fantastic. <laughs> so, and when, so I thought, oh my gosh, why have I talked about Ron so poorly? Lips like a fish. Oh no. And then I remembered well, the scene where I talked about him that way. He's walking into our house. I'm meeting him for the first time and he's going on a date with my mother. And I hated him. I hated him because he was going on a date with my mother. In other words, my description of him at that moment was, of course, infused with the scene and the feelings and my feelings. And as a reader of that scene, you understand. You understand that that is not how he looks. Absolutely. But that the girl is perceiving him that way because 
because feelings are also facts. When when I was reading the book, and, and I try to do this, right? I try to remove, I guess, whatever cultural or social baggage that I have when I'm reading something like this, when I'm reading a biography, because I know I'm going to bring with it my own perceptions. I've read the Isaacson book. I use an iPhone. And for better or for worse, your dad had inspired this sort of feeling even from someone who lives 10,000 miles away and has never met him, right? So I try to remove myself and remove that feeling from myself when I'm reading your book. And let me know if I got this right, because I think a lot of people missed it. The story of your mom and dad and the story of you coming into this world and I guess all of that hardship and maybe anguish also had to do with the fact that the both of them were just kids when they had you and that they had no idea what they were doing. Is that accurate? I'm a new mother. My son was born six months ago. And oh my God, it's wild. It's incredible. It's completely miraculous. And I don't mean in the good, I don't mean like it's a miracle, meaning it's good. I mean, it's a miracle, meaning it is momentous. It is all the things. And I, my mother kept on saying, you have to finish your first creative project before you have children. I think knowing, knowing me and knowing her own past, that was her emphasis for me. And I'd always been a writer. And so she said, you really, and she was, I thought, I thought maybe she was emphasizing that too much, but now that I have a child, I think, oh my God, <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it is just impossible to get the smallest things done. Um, creatively, I don't have the mental space, especially not the mental space to sit around and, and try and fail because I I mean, I just, I'm absolutely, all of my energy is so honed on him. There's not really extra. And I know that in time that would change, but there's no way I could have focused the way I had to on this book. I mean, by an order of magnitude. Uh, I don't even know how to emphasize it enough. So the idea that my mother was without family support, meaning, you know, she had young sisters and a, and a dysfunctional, in many ways, very dysfunctional family and no, you know, there certainly was no resources, no money. And my father also had a difficult family background and I don't think had the emotional grounding to be in such a position and yet my mother and my mother considered not having me very strongly, but kept on kind of not being able to make that decision. So there we are. We are in a situation with parents who are just ludicrously young and who don't want me. And, and yet my mother couldn't help it. And my father, I think later, as my mother said, kind of fell in love with me. In other words, we really liked each other. But no, it was not. I don't know what other people are saying. But yes, they were they were 23 and a young 23. Yeah. The other thing that I was grappling with, and I think now in retrospect, you know, in retrospect, it's like you can examine your own book in a certain way, like you would examine a book in in high school English, where you're like, what are the themes? Who are the characters? What are the themes? And I think in retrospect, I realized now that so much of the book has been cut away and it's been edited and it is sort of in its more final form that I was grappling and dealing with issues of legitimacy and shame. What what gives me the right to be on this planet? Why do I feel like I don't have the right to exist? Do I have the right to take up space? Should I be here? Which I think is 
probably a question a lot of people have in some regard or another. But I think that that was the ground was that both of my is that my beginnings were not established very very solidly. That both of my parents probably were were still dealing with their own issues of of where their place on the planet was. Which is hard enough when it's just you in a normal situation. But then, of course, when you're faced with having a family member who might happen to be one of the most famous people in the world, I guess that adds another layer of complication, unnecessary complication. The truth is, I don't know if it adds much complication. I guess, Does it not? Well, in the publication of the book, it has added complication in the sense that I felt like my margin of error was much smaller than I even realized. Right, I was very course. careful about it. I mean, I, I had the book fact-checked, not just legal check, but also fact-checked I jogged memory. I went back to all the old houses. I talked with everybody. I was so careful and, and also tried to be careful not to be baggy or loose in the book, to really deliver a book that was quite finished, that had been well thought out and, and wasn't, didn't have a certain part that was lazy because I, I felt like I, I'll be judged. And that is certainly complicated by the fact that I have a famous parent. Although if I hadn't had a famous parent, it would have been harder to publish the book. In my case, it would have been very e easy to publish a bad book, you know? So it's like a tricky, it's a tricky, tricky thing there. The truth is people have been coming up to me during the, the fairly limited book tour, again, see baby and, and crying. And they've been crying about different parts or they've been, or they've been ecstatic about different parts that they relate with. And so many people have come up and said, I have the same life as you. And that we have the same history. And I think, well, probably not the same. And then they, and they tell me, you know, I went to this, I have, I had this sort of parent and, and we grew up in this sort of area. And then I went to this and then I changed schools. And then, and then they say at the end, well, I mean, I didn't have the famous father, but so I think in some ways, what I'm hoping for is that it actually, it is a human story that I, 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 become so human in this book because I have really investigated my my embarrassing nooks and crannies and I have become so revealed in all my eccentricity that that I don't think I don't think the fact that my father was a celebrity has has so much bearing on the story I think it ups the contrast I think it makes the dark darker and the lights lighter and that and that was a, a wonderful thing for writing a memoir because I'm writing a story that is somewhat universal, but I have dramatic, dramatic examples of these things, you know? You know, reading the book, it was a heartbreaking experience, which isn't to say it wasn't an enjoyable experience because it is very well written. But I'm curious as to what writing the book was like. Why after all these years? I mean, was it catharsis? Was it as heartbreaking for you? Um, it's so interesting because I'm on the other side of it right now and it feels so enlivening. I feel like I can take up space in the world and that I can exist in all my, you know, befuddled humanity in a way that I don't think I was able to before. So that's how I feel now. There was a point I was writing the book and I read this boy's life and he talks about, and in and, and this boy's life, you know, it's a memoir by Tobias Wolf. And I noticed that the more that young Tobias is mischievous and bad and shameful, the more I loved him. And I thought, oh, so I guess, I guess if I just figure out all the parts of myself I don't like, and I don't try to hide them, but I try to get right up into them, <laughs> then maybe there'll be love there instead of contempt from the reader 
And I guess the other side is from myself. The other thing is when I first started writing it, I wasn't really appearing in the pages of my own memoir. Like I, I would write a scene and, and my editor would say, well, it's a, it's a pretty good scene, but where are you? Maybe my mother would be there. My father would be there. Maybe someone else would be there, but you had no idea who was this person writing. Maybe you got a little glimpse here and there from what she perceived. But what happened when I started to explore my own points of shame and my own areas where I wasn't so good is that you would think that would be difficult. But the wonderful part about it is I started appearing on the pages of my own book. There I was. And it was so enlivening to see myself and to not be scared anymore of the word I, because I thought, oh, how selfish, how embarrassing. Also embarrassing to be the daughter of a celebrity and writing a memoir like, oh. But then when I was bad, it didn't matter anymore. You have to go in search of your memories. I think people have said, how can you remember so much? I can hardly remember what I had for lunch. I've heard that a lot. And I think, well, if your life depended on it, and I don't mean my actual life depended on it, but a feeling of disappearing and a feeling of not deserving to exist. If, if, you, feel, if, if you feel that badly and that ashamed so that you have to write this thing to sort of unbury yourself, then you find a way to do the work to remember things. It turns out memory just takes a lot of work. And I think, I, you know, I'm just reading this book now, as I said, where he's talking about how, how, how loss and grief and trauma can fracture memory. So what I found is that you have to kind of, it's very uncomfortable to sit with your memories. And also to sit with your bad writing, because invariably, when you don't know what you're saying yet, at least for me, my writing was quite bad to begin. And I knew it because I was a good enough writer to know that my writing was bad. <laughs> and so I was not only sitting there perceiving my shame in life, but perceiving my shame in this, in this career that I had chosen. I had chosen to do a book and the book wasn't even good. And I was writing about myself and I wasn't even good. Right. So this is a, so it was, it was very, very hard. And I had a lot of people who encouraged me, who I would reach out to for encouragement, um, who believed in me, or otherwise, I think, you know, I was drowning at certain points. But if I sat there and then finally remembered something, like I would remember a fact, and facts would, would lead me to a particular house in a particular time. And from that fact, I would remember a particular anecdote or a particular story. And that story would have some emotion that clung to it. So I would be able to then remember some feelings. Right. Right. It was like, you know, it's like with each fact you can remember and you can dig up, you can finally dig up. It has a kind of residue of feeling with it. And so that was a process of, of remembering because, of course, memory and stories don't work there. They don't work if they're just the fact and they don't work if they're just the feelings. There's some incredible combination. And so, yes, anyway, that's a very long way of saying it was very, very uncomfortable. I wouldn't say it was painful. I would say it was, it was shameful and uncomfortable. And then for years, people are asking you, you know, what you're doing and you're saying, I'm writing a memoir and you know, it's bad. And they don't think much of you maybe, I mean, you know, I mean, years, like more than seven years, I'm, I'm working on this thing that no one sees, you know? So yeah, I felt really badly about myself. In coming to terms with that Tobias Wolf moment, in writing mm -hmm. yourself in that way, in 
depicting yourself in that way. You don't paint yourself in a glowing light either. And I think that's very fascinating because for me, one of my biggest takeaways from the book is that you don't at any point assign blame. <laughs> but you're terrible. No, <laughs> no, no. It's it's that it, no. it's that you at, at, at no point assign blame. Well, I but I right. I don't. I, I guess I don't think it just didn't serve me. I would have done it if it had served the book or served me. Trust me, I'm not above assigning blame. The problem was <laughs> it just didn't work. Right. It just didn't work. It wasn't the truth. I think there's something. It wasn't the truth, at least for me. There's something about prose. You can say something to someone, like you can say, oh, I don't have this or this, or my dad did this, and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But you write it, and it doesn't quite work, because the truth is not that people are victims, I think. It's not that they're powerless, rather. You know, It's that we're all participating somehow. And if you can find your participation, you can find this kind of freedom. And the other thing was just like, I really... And I'm not sure this comes through in the book enough, although I think it does. But like, I was a pretty happy kid and I've been a pretty happy person. And I think, you know, now that my son has been born and he's a kind of a, a kind of a mellow, joyful temperament. And I think maybe it's because we're amazing parents. And then I think, no, I think he was born that way. And I think there's some quality where, you know, I was quite happy in many ways. There was a lot of, you know, there was this gorgeous sunlight I would you know I don't know what I actually don't know what what the weather is like where you are it's just hot all the time oh really oh it's like eight it's like hot and humid all the time all the time so like 80 degrees humid okay so wait uh what is that in but celsius you're like, you measure in celsius yeah. 80, 35 or something? so we're about 28 to 30 okay in celsius and it's hot and humid except during the rainy season when it's rainy hot and humid right okay so there was something about there's something about the Bay Area which is Mediterranean but maybe more severe. It's it's a kind of you're kind of doused in a holy holy light in this and it's it's majestic. And so and there was something nice about Palo Alto when I was growing up. It was quiet. It was thoughtful cuz you know Stanford University is there and the tech the tech stuff was starting but it wasn't it wasn't based on money, at least not the, the feeling of it. It was based on probably curiosity and, and nerdery and sort of excitement yeah. and the future. And so it was kind of an amazing time. And I was aware of it being an amazing time. And my parents, as difficult as they were at times, I hope I have conveyed, they were, I mean, they were young, full of energy, passionate, artistic, curious and beautiful so there was this there was also this counterbalancing exaltation i think and i think that comes across when you've read the entire book Good. that actually comes <laughs> yeah. across if you've read a stray okay. quote you might get very angry at something I, I won't use forgiveness but i think that acceptance that you've Mm-hmm. that you've come to. And I'm curious as to, and this may be a chicken and egg question, but did you come to that acceptance already or was it a process as you were writing this book? I'm not sure. I just know I'm much more comfortable in my skin now. So I think, was it, did it accelerate toward the very end or was it sort of bit by bit as I wrote the book? And I would say it was, probably, you know, a kind of logarithmic curve, like 
it happened bit by bit. And, and part of the way that it happened was that I would go back over a story that I had remembered quite clearly. And I remembered the feelings of the story as I was living it. And I would go back and sort of live it again in my memory. And I would realize it had meant more than I, than I understood at the time. Right. And so I would have this kind of incredible double perspective. I would remember my feelings, my strong feelings as a girl. And one of the things I think happens is, I don't know if other people feel this way. I've mentioned this and I never know if other people feel this way, but I think as a child, when something didn't make sense, I sort of saved it. It's like I put it in a box to open up later. I thought this doesn't make any sense. So then in the process of writing this book, I opened up all these old boxes and looked at them because I think I'd save them as a child because I thought this doesn't make sense. When I'm an adult, I can make sense of it. So I think what happened is I would find something I thought I understood and then going back and writing, I would realize it was something else. And maybe sometimes I would, the thing I would realize it was would, would make it more palatable for me. And like, for example, there was a kind of exciting moment when my father came back and started to get to know me and we're going to his mansion in the hills. We're driving in his Porsche. And this is a man who doesn't have trouble speaking in front of crowds and the entire drive. He doesn't say anything and I'm trying to talk, but it's so embarrassing. And, you know, of course, as a child, you think like, oh, maybe he doesn't want to talk to me. And just going back over the story, I realized, oh, he was incredibly awkward. He was a young man getting to know his daughter who he'd abandoned. He didn't know how to be with kids. He probably felt a bit guilty about not being around before. He literally did not know what to say. And just going over these things or, or, or where there's a scene in Hawaii when he's holding me and I want to go get dessert, right. he's holding me on his lap. And he's saying, look, we have the same, look, we've got the same nose. Look, we've got the same fingers. And I remember at least you're going to remember this. He always used to say, least you're going to remember this. And I thought it was so annoying. Like, why do I always have to be the person that remembers everything? I want to be the person who's living. I don't want to be the record keeper or the rememberer. The way he would say it, I found kind of annoying and I didn't know why, what he meant. But as I went back over that memory of him, him isolating these body parts, I, I realized, oh, he's claiming me. He's saying, you're my kid. Yeah. And I hadn't realized, I mean, I, I really hadn't realized that until I took the time and went back and, and thought of that and wrote it out. And then I, as I did with many points in this book, had a kind of revelation. Oh, he's saying I'm genetically his. Oh my God. <laughs> and so, so I think that each one of those moments, each one of those aha moments was a, was a place where I could just finally relax or I want to say, set it down. Maybe I'd been holding, holding a lot of things and I could kind of finally be at peace and, and set them down. Lisa, talk to me about taking back the narrative, because obviously your life has been fictionalized enough. They've made films and TV movies and other people have written about it. And now finally you get to tell that story. It, it must have been painful, like watching other people's interpretations of who you were. So I have just stayed away from that stuff. I, I didn't read the, the Walter Isaacson biography. I didn't um, watch the Aaron Sorkin movie. I um, just haven't really participated in the public uh, aspects. I also don't even think to myself that it's taking back the narrative meaning. I've always written and I think 
probably no matter what family I was born into, I would have, I mean, who can say this really, but I feel like I would have written a memoir regardless. And I kind of happened to be born into this family. Um, so I don't even think of it as taking, taking back the narrative. I guess I think of it in another way, which is like, I'm telling the narrative of a, of a coming of age story with as much honesty and um, intricacy as I, as I can, as I can find and muster so that other people might see themselves. So instead of taking back the narrative of like Steve Jobs, I think of it more like I'm taking back the narrative of a young woman or a young person coming of age, which I feel like is a more lofty goal and probably something that I have achieved more accurately. And so far as my father's narrative, like I'm the last person to talk about his work life. I really don't know about it. And I also, the idea that I'm writing something to refute other things is so sort of soul sucking or soul sapping. It feels like, oh, brother, <laughs> like anyone can have the narrative about my father that they would like to have. But at the same time, the idea that because he's famous means that I'm not allowed to write or that I'm not allowed to tell a story, I decided that was not true for me, that people are allowed to tell their story. And that doesn't mean just me, that means anyone. And any artist is allowed to tell it in whatever form is appropriate for them. So that's how I think about it. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that is the most important thing, because when you make that point, and when people read your book as well, I think there is this stark realization that every individual's relationship with another individual is personal, intimate, and their own. So if yeah. Tim Cook says, my relationship with Steve Jobs wasn't like that, well, yes, it wasn't, because your relationship was yours. But he would be a different right. person with his daughter or his wife. And I think that often gets lost in the conversation, that people are different. Well, although I feel, I did feel like I was actually surprised at the sort of the feeling, oh my gosh, Steve Jobs was mean sometimes. I thought, haven't we covered this? <laughs> I thought we had. I was so confused. I, I, was like, I, was so con I was so confused. I thought, can we not talk about something else? Because that seems like really old news. They made two whole movies about it. I thought so. I mean, I haven't seen them, but from what I've heard, that wasn't the news of my book. And I also feel like, I mean, there are only a few people who are related and in the same family with Steve Jobs. But everybody had a childhood and has parents. And most people love complicated people. I mean, people have been like, how can you love someone? Like, I think like, gosh, I thought we, I thought people, I thought simplicity was not a you know a prerequisite for love. In fact, quite the opposite as far as I understand. <laughs> so, so I think it's almost a larger, it's a larger goal to, to be writing a coming of age story that is meaningful than to be correcting or taking back or somehow amending a narrative. I mean, that's really not, I was, I was telling a true story, but I, I wasn't doing it for, to settle a score, amend a narrative or change a narrative. Everyone can have their own narrative. Of course, it, it irks me when certain narratives don't feel true. I feel like everyone is entitled to their own, their own attempt at, at, at truth about their own narrative. Just wanted to ask you about that damn computer because it appears throughout your narrative, the conversation about the Lisa, <laughs> right? And and I, I just wanted to know what that actually meant to you. I mean, you were very clear that every time it came up, it struck a nerve and it struck a chord. But I think the last time it comes up, 
Was it in Como? I think it was in Lake Como, wasn't it? No, it was in Ez, which is a city in the in the south of France. Oh, that's right. I've never been to Como. I would like to go to Como. It sounds amazing. <laughs> I would too. Um, and, and I think there was that acceptance. And I'm curious as to the impact that this strange inanimate object had on your life growing right. up. Well, I felt kind of annoyed actually that it turned out to be such a turned out to be such a through line. You know, it's one of the through lines, and I thought like, oh, cheesy. Um, but it turned out to work because basically what it was. I don't really particularly care about computers. I mean, I'm talking on an iPhone now, and I write on a Mac. But I and I and I think they're great. But I, it's not my passion, and so it didn't really matter that a computer was or was not named after me particularly in that sense. I think what it meant for me at the time was that all those years that I was missing him and longing for this father who wasn't around and imagining his care. Maybe during that time, he was missing me too. And that's what it meant. And so that's what I was trying to get out of him when I was asking him if it was named after me was, was not, can I, you know, can I add a, an arrow in my quiver or something like that? It was, it was, did, were you, is, is it true that you secretly did love me? That you abandoned me, but you actually loved me. And you actually were missing me when I was missing you. So I kept on trying to ask him and he kept on convincingly, really convincingly, actually. I think other people were even convinced saying no and it was not only painful because it was because the no was was no I wasn't thinking about you no I didn't care about you that much no I was completely breezy and free of you and why are you asking and so he would say no and I would be devastated one because it meant no I wasn't thinking about, and two because sometimes it would be in front of other people and I would feel so humiliated like this pathetic girl who he didn't care about who keeps on trying to get some credit for something that had nothing to do with her at all. And so it was a double whammy of, no, you're not important to me and everyone else can see it too. So I would try to ask him, I would try to ask him when we were alone and when I had kind of built up my, my armor to be able to deal with the answer being no, which it was, and try not to, to let other people ask him, you know, say, oh, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't. So that I didn't have to deal with that moment of terrible grief. So after a while, I just decided that he must be right. It must be true. And stopped asking. Lisa, this is a truly remarkable read. Thank you so much for writing it. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much. That was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Lisa Brennan-Jobs. Her memoir, Small Fry, is available at all good bookstores. And it is a deeply thoughtful exploration into the lives of three individuals trying their very best to live with one another while struggling to quiet their own demons. It is a work that does away with drama and sentimentality. It is remarkably precise. It is an essential piece of reading and writing. I cannot recommend it highly enough. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9.